You are listening to Riverhouse Church's Sermon of the Week. We hope this talk equips and inspires you. You know, uh, every week at church is such a different experience. And I think tonight, for some reason, this has been a, even in preparation for this week, it's been uh, challenging for me. And so uh, I just want to give a disclaimer, even before we get into it tonight, that I, I, I believe Jesus wants to challenge you tonight. No matter if you have walked with God for a week, or you have never walked with God, or you've been walking with him for decades, I believe that God wants to, to challenge us tonight. And uh, again, I want to reiterate what I did at the welcome, which was that we come to God as kindergartners. And sometimes we look at hard lessons, and not even hard lessons, but just these moments where we encounter God's holiness, and it's like, oh my gosh, something's wrong with me. Everything has to change, da 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 You know what I'm talking about? And I just want to encourage you to like, just be a child and just be a kindergartner. Like, I have so much to learn. Uh, I have so much to learn. And this season, truly, it's, it's, I actually relate emotionally before God when I come before him with the posture of a kindergarten. That's what I feel like. I'm like, Lord... I just haven't known what I thought I knew, and what I thought I knew, I don't, I don't know. And it's been actually really refreshing for me. So I want to encourage you, like, don't take yourself too seriously. Like, God, he loves you like a little sweet little kindergartner. Like, we read, we did, uh, we partnered with Vineyard over Christmas time. We went and we read uh, Christmas stories, and I got assigned to the pre- this preschool class, and I read The Grinch, and these kids, like, I know what happens on that page. <laughs> and I was like, Trying to like read it, and they're like, oh, oh, and then he puts the Christmas tree up the chimney. <laughs> like, and I was like, these kids are so cute, I'm gonna die right now, you know? But like, that's how God sees us. So even, you know, when you're like the one kid's over there eating, stealing snacks from the crib, when he, you know, whatever, it's like, it doesn't, it just, it's kindergartner, right? So let's just be kindergartners, let's let God love us. I'm not like gonna punish you, I know it sounds like I am right now, that's not what's gonna happen. I believe God wants to inspire us. Uh, but I just am really wanting to set the precedent for us to receive tonight, and that's the posture. Uh, we are going to continue on this uh, series, which we started last week, called Discipled by Jesus. And the goal of this, the goal of Jesus' discipleship is that we would be habitational Christians. We would live as a habitation of God, and we would carry his presence every week, everywhere we go. And uh, I'm going to actually have you stand. I'm going to read the same scripture verse again. Uh, we read 12 verses out of Ezekiel 47, and I'm, I want to read this again, and let's just stand and honor the word of God, and, uh, and, then, and then we'll go from there. So this is Ezekiel 47, verse 1 through 12. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east, and the water was flowing from, un- from down under from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate, by the, to the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. When the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits and led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the waist. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river I could not pass for the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the bank of the river. 
Now when I returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, these waters go out toward the eastern region, region and go down into the Dead Sea. Then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live, and there will be very many fish, for these waters go there and the others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from Engedi to Eniglaim. There will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds. Like the fish of the great sea, very many, but its swamps and marshes won't become fresh. They'll be left for salt. By the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And that is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. We are called to be that river. We are called to live in that river and usher the presence of God everywhere we go. I shared a few stories last week. You can listen to the message on the podcast if you weren't here about God just resting on humans throughout church history in such a way that everywhere they go, life abounds. Everywhere you go, you were created to be a habitation, a temple of God that carries his manifest presence and actually transforms environments simply because of the intimacy and the connection that you have with God. That was last week's message, amen? If you were here, you can't say amen if you weren't here. Okay, one person was here. Uh, this week, uh, I, I want to actually uh, talk about uh, worship. Uh, we, we said last week that a habitation, right, God inhabits the praises of his people. So if we want to live a life that's inhabited by God, we have to live a life of praise, a life, a life that is oriented, right, in everything I'm doing, and I'm fulfilling my, my vertical uh, assignment as well as the horizontal assignment, because everything in our life, God is discipling us to become worshipers. That's one of our primary identities in this life, is that we are worshipers. We are created to worship. The question is not if you will worship. It is who or what you will worship, because human beings are created fundamentally to worship something. We will worship relentlessly. We will worship. So the question of your life and my life is who are you going to worship? Every minute, every day of your life. And again, this isn't some hyper-religious, are you praying 19 hours a day and fasting the other five, right? This is the life that God has created, the fullness of human expression. He knows where we're to sow the seed of our time, and we need him to do this, right? That's last week. There's a little recap. So this week, I want to talk uh, about worship, that we are called as worshipers, and I wanna get in to more of what this means because we do a lot of things on Sunday, and we come to church on Sunday, and sometimes we fail to really recognize what is it that we're doing? Why do we come to church? Why do we pray? Why do we do all of these things? What is God's wisdom in orchestrating all of this? One of the, the fundamental beliefs, like an underlying belief that I have about spirituality is that if we can see everything that God's called us to do from his perspective, we will be motivated to do it. Does that make sense? Like God incentivizes what he calls us to do. If we could see from his perspective, we'd be like, that's so good. Like that is exactly what I need to do. Does that make sense? 
So I believe that a life of worship, we have to see what God sees and we're like, that is exact, yep, that's it. You know me, that's what I want, right? But it takes a journey because of sin and brokenness and all of life. Sometimes we're blind. We cannot see what, we were, what, we, what he can see. And so that's where faith comes in. We don't immediately come to seeing what he sees. Sometimes it's a journey of obedience that gets us from what we see, man's perspective, to God's perspective. But if you will continue walking faithfully, God opens, he enlivens our eyes so that we can see from his perspective. So I believe that I'm gonna catalyze some thought. I'm gonna give you some some, some things to wrestle with, create a little tension perhaps over this sermon series that I believe God's actually gonna open our eyes throughout the course of it so that we can see what he sees and step in to what he's called us to, to do with our lives, which is a life of worship, okay? Okay, keep affirming me. You're real quiet tonight. All right, so I wanna talk about the Levitical call in the church today. All right, so historically, who knows, like Levites, raise your hands. I'm just gonna get you to do all kinds of stuff. All right, now stand, no, I'm just joking. Uh, so Levites, right? So God had a, a religious structure in Israel, and I wanna break it down, and then I wanna bring us into a modern-day structure, So this is gonna help me. I'm gonna kinda teach for a while, and then I'm gonna preach, okay? So, so in historical Israel, there were 12 tribes, right? 11 tribes had a portion in the land. They were given inheritance, a physical inheritance to cultivate the promised land. But there was one tribe, the Levites, that did not have that portion. And their portion was actually to care for the temple, right? The rituals and the spiritual sacrifices and all the things that they did in the temple, including all of the administration, which if you read Leviticus, you'll be like, there's a lot of administration that goes into sacrificing thousands of goats, goats and bulls and doves. And anybody, you know, I think the Levites probably like, I thought I was gonna be all spiritual. I'm just cleaning up messes all the time, right? So the Levites took care of the temple structure. Israel cultivated the land, right? And it was an interdependent relationship where the Levites actually had no physical portion, so they lived off of what Israel came to be faithful in their covenant law to the Torah, right, in worship. So it created this system where the 11 tribes needed the Levites to operate the temple, which was the center of Jewish spirituality. Does this make sense? So we have temple, which is where God lived. We have the Levites who took care of the temple on Mount Zion. And then we have the people in the land that were cultivating the land, bringing the fruit of the land in worship. And it created uh, the, Jewish, uh, the Jewish religious structure. Okay? What does this matter to me? Say that. What does that matter to me? All right, this is why it matters to you. Okay? In the New Testament... Uh, some amazing things took place because of Jesus. And it's actually, it's amazing, but it's also complex, right? And here's the complexity, right? So in the, in the, and here's the amazing thing as well. In the Old Testament, there was a temple, which is where God lived. There were Levitical priests who ministered in the presence. They were anointed mediators and intercessors for the people. And then there were the people of God that came, and they, the whole life was centered around the temple, right? And they came to to live and create their whole life was up to Mount Zion. In the New Testament, what happens? Who's, who's the temple? The people of God become the temple. In the New Testament, who's the priesthood? We're a priesthood of believers. And in the New Testament, instead of camping around the temple, right, we're told to live our lives around the presence, the person of Jesus, who is Christ 
Where? Christ in us, right? So there's like a huge shift that took place. No longer is it a temple. We are the temple. No longer is there a Levitical priesthood. We're the priest. And no longer do we camp around a physical, right? We're actually camping around. It's a relational instead of a locational paradigm. Does this make sense? All right, so that's amazing. And that, has, that was last week's message in theory or in, in kind of part. Uh, but this is the complex part of that. Though God shifted the identity of New Testament believers, he actually kept the structure fairly in place. It's a little shifted, and I'm gonna talk about that, but the New Testament, who is a priesthood of believers, we are the temple of God, Christ does live within us, are still called to go to church. Don't forsake the public assembly of believers. All throughout church history, it was, instead of Saturday, it became the Lord's Day on Sunday. We still structure our lives. We, we come to church. There's no more a Levitical priesthood like the Old Covenant sense, but Ephesians 4, Paul tells us there's now a five-fold ministry that have been given grace to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So it's a priesthood within a priesthood. Does this make sense? There's people that are called to still actually give their lives to creating the spiritual culture of the church, and they don't have an inheritance in the land. They don't work in the sense of going and you know, earning their own living. They live off of what comes into the church, and then the people of God, right, are still, they, they live this rhythm, they, there's, a, there's a, a structure that we uh, come and go, uh, and we create spiritual rhythm. So does this make sense? So do you see how it's complex? Do you see how it's amazing? All right, and just to give you a percentage breakdown, 11 tribes, 11 out of 12, that would be 91, about 91.5% of Israel was not called to the church structure, to the temple structure, it's very today, right? It's like between five and 10% of Christians will ever be in ministry, right? So we gotta, we gotta understand this. There's one big shift that I wanna make, make here is that, so the identity changes, right? But the, but the structure remains, right? So even though it's a similar structure, this is the problem that happens is that people in the church, there's, there's, there's been this teeter-totter. It's either been, no, I'm gonna reject all structure and because I've got Christ in me and I'm a temple and I'm a priest, I'm gonna do my own thing. That's, that's actually not biblical. Then the other swing of the pendulum is then let's just set it up and do it just like the Jews did. It's all about the temple on Mount Zion. That is the height of spirituality. And the fivefold ministers, the pastors are the spiritual ones. They're the mediators. They're the intercessors. And all come there, you know, once or twice a month, maybe three times, maybe four if I'm really hurting. And, you know, I'll create this rhythm where I kind of go there when I need it. And it's like kind of, does this make sense? That's wrong too. That's not biblical. So this is, it's amazing revelation, but it's, com it's complicated because God kept the structure of the church and a, a new covenant priesthood of Ephesians 4, fivefold ministers, and the people of God that are still instructed to gather and come to it, but the function, the role, actually shifts dramatically. And this is why I read Ezekiel 47, is Ezekiel 47 is a prophetic picture of the church structure versus the temple structure. Right, God is actually critiquing the temple structure in Ezekiel 47 because the further the river gets away, what happens? It gets deeper, it gets more powerful, and amazing things start happening. Right, so 
God is actually critiquing an over-centralized religious structure which everything was ascending to Mount Zion. So the Old Testament was a hierarchy. And who, got the, who became the most powerful and the, and, the, and the elite ones in Israel culture? The Levites, why? Because they were higher up the mountain. Everything was up to Mount Zion, they're the temple, they're the ones that were closest to the temple. They became the mediators, the people of God had their role but they just kinda did their own thing and they just went there for feasts and every once in a while. Right, so it became this hierarchical structure where, where the Levites got exalted. They were the anointed ones and everyone else was just the people of God. Right, so the church, this Ezekiel 47 is actually giving us a clue, a key for how we can get a governmental structure, a kingdom, a kingdom focused structure where there can be kingdom equality in our, the relationship between the pulpit and the pew. So what I'm trying to get at. I know this is a lot, you're gonna have to listen to this podcast again. I may put my notes out, right? But there's kingdom equality that comes when we see the kingdom and we see God's governmental structure in the new covenant priesthood of believers. And this is how it comes, right? The church is where the, right, the, temp, the trickle, it's where the trickle comes. And the further the trickle gets, right, the more powerful it becomes, right? So there are people, I am one of them. There's, there is a New Testament, there's a Levitical call, a modern day Levitical call. I'm not called to sacrifice, I'm not good with animals, don't worry, but, but I'm, I've given my life, God has called me, set me apart to say, I want you to give your life to create the culture of the church that my people are to come to to experience the trickle, okay? And then the water goes, the presence goes, and it gets deeper and deeper the further away it gets, meaning it doesn't need a centralized connection, it's a decentralized model, it's powerful, it's wild, it's a movement, it is not controlled, it is not structured. Right? The, the church, the Sunday is structured. But what happens after is not controlled. It is not structured. It's more powerful. And then two things happen. Trees and fishermen, which both of them are your identity as marketplace believers, as people sent out, the 11 tribes sent out into the world. Trees rooted, bearing fruit, healing for the nation, spiritual food, and fishermen. You're saving souls. You're bringing people into the kingdom. Right? This is a picture, and this is what I'm trying to get out here. When we start seeing the kingdom, what's more exciting? Is it a trickle? Or is it a river turning the Dead Sea to life and fruit happening and trees bearing fruit and healing for the nations? What's more exciting? What's more powerful? What is God's goal? Not just the river, it's to change the world. Jesus wants Eden back on earth. He wants sin to be destroyed. He wants cities to be transformed. We say, your kingdom come in Boise as it is in heaven. Do you know why we say in Boise? Because what is the clearest depiction of, a, of, of, a, of the kingdom in the scriptures? It's a city. It's a city called Jerusalem. We over-spiritualize this sometimes. We still think in our minds that your kingdom come, your will be done in church as it is in heaven. That is not God's goal. He wants to transform cities. He's at work with all the suffering and the poor and the afflicted and the addicts and every, that's where he is. He's there saying, come join me. I wanna use you, you have a river inside of you. And this, anywhere that river goes, life comes. God wants to transform cities. Cities are made of government, business, economics, education, 
Everything that we do, every single day, we're creating cities. And God wants into that creative process, which is why he will refuse, refuse to call 100% of the church to spend their lives creating the culture of the church. And he wants to shatter the idol of the pulpit. When we see the kingdom, we'll start seeing the pulpit for what it is. It is a call to sacrificial servanthood. It is the lowest calling on the totem pole of the kingdom. How do I know that biblically? We give double honor to who? Say it loud. You said it. Those who preach and teach get double honor. This is 1 Corinthians 12. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one member. For if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And then he proceeds to say, and first in the church are apostles, then prophets, then miracles, then healings. Whoa. So we give more abundant honor to the weaker members of the body and we give double honor to those that preach and teach the word. Why? Because the pulpit, when God calls someone, he's calling them to a call of sacrificial servanthood, which is to give your life, have no inheritance in the land, become financially dependent, right? Depend on your brothers and sisters. And, and it's, it's a unique call with unique grace and God does give grace, but what is the grace for? You don't have to be a Levite to get the grace. The grace is to equip the body to do the work of ministry in the world, right? When we start opening up to the kingdom, we'll no longer clamor for the pulpit as if that's the height of the spiritual mountain with God because this whole passage of Ezekiel 47 has nothing. <laughs> Who wants to live in a trickle? Give your life to create a trickle, Jordan, right? I'm not, I'm not apologizing for it because God, where he gives grace, he gives desire, right? It, it's amazing, but I'm saying we have to see the kingdom, because once we see the kingdom, church leadership won't be some exalted, lofty thing. It will be something that we do give double honor to. It's something that we do value. But it is not something that we clamor for and have self-promotion to try to get because we will have eyes on the kingdom. We'll recognize, I want to do what I'm called to do and bring the kingdom. This is, a, this is a paradigm shift. This is a big paradigm shift that we're going to have to keep working on here, but this is kingdom equality. That's how the government of God works. So I'm not advocating that we don't value those that minister. No, it's an amazing gift. They've been graced for your benefit, but we have to start putting value in the right places. We have to see the kingdom. We have to see the river that's flowing. We have to recognize that I've been called to be that river. You know, and even Levitical call, part of it is, you know, people that God calls in that way, they've been called to walk a painstaking process to pioneer a life message that's anointed by God that catalyzes spiritual growth in the body. 
Read 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. Paul's defending his ministry. He's saying, I'm persecuted, beat down, despaired, but I'm not despairing. I speak the word of Christ boldly, right? That the light of God will shine forth in your hearts and you'll see his glory and you'll be transformed from one degree of glory to another. He's, he's defending, he's getting very intimate with the, his understanding of his calling. I've given everything for this grace that God's given me by his mercy, this ministry, so that you will benefit, so that you will be edified, so that you can do what you're called to do. This is something that we should long for. We should long to be faithful to what God has called us to. We need to see the kingdom because when we see the kingdom, desire will awaken. And the reality is that well over 90% of you in this room, you're not called as Levites to the church. You're called to culture. Praise God. Praise God. I never wanted to be (laughs) called to where I am just so you know. So I live vicariously through all of you. I'm serious. I've had to wrestle with feeling confined. I wanna get out there, God, I wanna do it. I believe this stuff works, but it's not my calling. So in light of that, I want to get honest with you all, and uh, I want to talk the rest of this time about why forsaking the public gathering actually cost you and your family greatly. And I know that's not a popular sermon, but it's what the Lord's given me. So I want to I introduce to you the idea, a term called improvisational disciples. Say that three times fast. So when I'm talking improvisation, uh, you know, I'm going to read a, a, a half a page from this author uh, who, it's his term, not mine, but uh, he's using it in light of crowds, say, hey, improvisational musicians who they'll actually do entire concerts Well, they'll get up on their piano, they'll have someone randomly in the crowd say, hey, sing a melody, and then they will compose an hour long using all different genres of music and music theory, and they'll weave together this beautiful thing, improving the melody they just received because they're so excellent at it. And then also like actors will do the same thing. I don't know if anybody's ever been to an improvisational actor. You know what I'm talking about? They'll get like six actors, they'll give them a script on the spot or like an idea and then they do a whole play. And then also like uh, basketball players is what he's using, which is things are always changing. So you're having to improv based on your skill level and everything, that's what's gonna dictate how well you are in the demands of the moment, right? So he's using this term. says, the best improvisational musicians, actors, and athletes surrender their freedom in order to attain mastery, which actually and paradoxically gives them a different kind of freedom, the freedom to excel at improv. They submit to the training of a master, practice scales and lines and drills, and learn multiple skills until, steeped in discipline, they can perform without making a cacophony of sound or creating little more than chaos. They learn that such discipline leads to the kind of freedom that only the most accomplished artists and athletes experience. Early Christians living as cultural outsiders learned how to be improvisational disciples among the Greco-Roman people who did not understand nor always welcome the new religion of Christianity. Christians never knew from one day to the next what circumstances they would face, what challenges awaited them. The cultural landscape in which they lived made little room for Christianity, largely because Christianity departed 
so dramatically from how religion functioned in antiquity. This setting required Christians to learn the art and skill of improvisation. It prepared them for the unexpected. It made them creative and resourceful. It equipped them to be effective witnesses to the Roman world. The church developed resources to assist them. For the most part, they tried to internalize resources which included knowledge, belief, skills, disciplines, virtues they needed to live as disciples. Not that every Christian pursued this course, but enough did to create and sustain a movement over many generations, like a championship college basketball team that keeps reloading year after year, making the team perennially competitive even when the star players graduate. The primary setting for this kind of preparation was worship. Right, so God wants to disciple us into becoming improvisational disciples. And he uses worship to train us into this type of discipleship. Are you familiar with this term? Did that make sense? Yeah. Right? We are living in a culture, and this is what this author's arguing in this book. It's called Resilient Faith. It's a wonderful read by Gerald Sitzer. He's saying the early church had to operate like this because Christianity had no grit in culture. And he's saying it's exciting because the same thing's happening today. Once again, Christianity is not wanted and it has no landing space within secular culture, meaning we have to get resourceful and creative. We have to become masters, mastered and trained by Jesus to become the type of disciples that can change the world and bring this river in the complexities of coronavirus and, and you know, the LGTB and the transgender, you know, all the things that are happening in our world. Jesus is not intimidated. He's just looking for people that have been so trained that they can respond and bring the wisdom of God into any situation and bear fruit and bring transformation, right? And where is he training you for this? Worship. He's training us in worship. And it's why he says, don't forsake the public gathering. And I wanna break down why. And we're gonna go on this for a few weeks. And so tonight, I'm gonna talk about why we gather to worship, what God's doing here. But then we're gonna go deeper in the coming weeks and we're gonna get into how the communal discipline of worship informs the individual disciplines of worship, which then has effect on the communal forms of worship. All right, so why do we gather? This is the most simple way to say it. Right, so, the, so worship, as understood by the church since the very beginning of the church, is that worship is a corporate discipline that we build our lives around. Right, so Riverhouse, even, we're a community of worshipers determined to embody the gospel through prayer, family, and mission. Right, so worship is who we're becoming. We're becoming and learning. We're being equipped to be worshipers, and we do it in different ways, and we're gonna go into some of that later. But worship, is, is, it's a communal discipline. Right? And worship always goes like this. This is how it's always been understood throughout all of church history. It's communal, then it's individual, and then it goes back into communal. And what do I mean by this? In Ephesians 4, Paul is breaking down his understanding of the church. His the ecclesiology is the word. It's describing his real belief. It's the most clear passage to his uh, theology around the structure of the church. And he starts by saying that we're a body. We're the body of Christ then it breaks and he goes into a subsection talking about how each individual part, say individual, individual part is to function properly. And then it says at the end, it says, and then when that happens, the body will build itself up in love. Say build itself up. Another word for that would be edification, right? So this is what I'm trying to get at. The communal discipline of worship catalyzes and informs your individual 
disciplines of worship, which then edify the communal discipline of worship. This is a powerful cycle that we are created to live in as the church, right? So the, the communal discipline, what we're doing here is to catalyze and inform what you do with the rest of your time, which then as you grow, you will naturally then edify what we do when we come here. So it's a cycle of continued growth from glory to glory to glory to glory. And we together are growing to become worshipers and we're being drawn in. We become like what we worship. So we, as we're growing in worship, and it is a communal rhythm, as the Levites are functioning and the people of God are functioning, there's a communal rhythm and a building up, and we are becoming like Jesus. Right? Uh, one of the early church historians is Tertullian. They talked about how it was the Sunday gathering, and then they had rhythms for their, for their weekly. Bonhoeffer has a book called Life Together. It was the day together, and his next chapter is the day alone. This is a constant theme all throughout church history. You will not find anything that speaks against it, right? So we have to learn to complete this cycle, right? Because it's powerful when this cycle takes place. Right, but, you know, and, and, and maybe even just to break it down a little bit, right, so the Levites right, are creating the culture of communal worship, which is catalyzing the people of God to grow as worshipers, which that growth will manifest as more of God's presence and more people, right, which will then further uh, invigorate or will push the Levites to more creativity, right? So we all function, we all have roles in this, and we're working together to create the culture of the church but there are things that happen that will stagnate growth. And this is where I'm gonna end tonight. Right? I wanna talk about two pitfalls that will produce stagnancy in the church. Right? And the, the unspoken in all of this is that God is faithful and he's always lavishing grace on the church. Right? He longs, like, he longs to lavish his presence on the church. He longs, right? he is always faithful. Right? So we know that stagnation doesn't come from him. Amen? Life, everything he does is life, abundant life. All right, so the first I wanna focus on is the Levites. If the Levites abandon their calling to minister first unto the Lord and start focusing on people, put people before the presence, right? start, start using my human strategy and my charisma and my skill and my funny jokes. That was a joke to try to woo a crowd and try to cater to people's appetites and to try to make everybody comfortable and make this like a social club and do everything to maximize the growth efforts and do everything like that and, and like that, right? When I start focusing on people before the presence, there's no true power in my ministry. That's why I love what Jordan Soderman does. Right? He's not entertaining people. He's like, I'm gonna worship you, Jesus, even if it's uncomfortable. Right, you forget sometimes how vulnerable it is to bear your soul on a stage, right? But he's called, right? There's a staff here at this church that are called. They're, Le they're Levites. They're giving us. We give every hour of our work week to creating what you experience week after week after week. And we have other people at high-level volunteers and I'm not getting to all of it. But, right, this is what's happening. This is we're experiencing God, right? And it is incredible. But if we took our eyes off the presence and start making it about everybody comfortable and this and that and this and that, right? There's no power. There's no power. And if there's no power and there's no conviction, there's no change. And if there's no change and there's no growth in the people, right, then we start stagnating. Right? So it starts, the, the Levites have a role. And if the Levites don't fulfill their role, then the whole system doesn't work. 
Stagnated growth, it happens. It happens, right? If we focus on ear tickling instead of true conviction that cuts our hearts sometimes and challenges us and offends us, right? Jesus is not trying to entertain us. He's not trying to make us nice and comfortable like we just went to a rock and roll concert and then we go home. We should be disturbed. We're coming before a holy God and we're concerned like something went wrong at church when we're disturbed. We shouldn't always be disturbed, that'd be bad. But sometimes we should be disturbed. He's holy. Like the scriptures, they fall like a dead man before him. Why do we think we should be so comfortable? So the first start, it starts with the Levites. But second, the people of God. If the people of God become consumers of spirituality, it, we will stagnate. Consumption is about our appetites. Worship is about Jesus and his desire. Consumption is about, and, and it's consumed with uh, convenience. Just look at the investment, the multi-billion dollar investment Amazon just put into going from two day to one day. Two days, not enough. We need one day because they know they're making millions of dollars on consumer habits. Right? Consumers are consumed with convenience, their schedules, their money, their preferences. It's all about our appetites. That's what consumption is. It's trained us. Our culture trains us in this. Right? And fundamentally, Christian consumers say this. I won't worship my way when it's convenient for me. I won't worship my way when it's convenient for me. Worshippers say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Here's my life, do with it whatever you may. This is an interdependent calling. The Levites must be worshipers. The people of God must be worshipers. Mark 10 has a story that we love to breeze past and contextualize in the American church about the rich young ruler. It says he was setting out on a journey, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, Mark 10, 17, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Don't bear false witness, don't defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt love for him. This is about the tenderness of God. He felt a love for him and said, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Jesus was giving him the highest honor he could give a human. He was asking him to be his disciple. And his response was, I'm just too busy. I have way too many important things to do with all my wealth.
And I know that when Jesus looks at our American church and even our church, he's busy. Average stats in America, most Christians come to church once a month because they're busy. It's not convenient. Got too much going on. Whose time is it? Whose money is it? Whose children are they? Who's the author of life? Who's the one that set the stars in motion and created the atmosphere and the rhythms and the seasons and the, and the, the lunar eclipses and the oceans and the tides? And who knows how to make life function? And Jesus, it's very clear what he asked. Don't forsake public once. I want your time. Seek me first, right? Discipleship, he wants your time. And I had to check my heart on this message because one of the hardest things for me and my call, the Levitical call, is it's God. I pour my passion into something that people value this much, I feel like, sometimes. And he's like, I know, but how do you think I feel? <laughs> and so I'm not speaking out of anger. I'm not trying to judge anyone. We're in kindergarten. We have to recognize that the world we live on is conditioning us and it's training us to be world-class consumers. And so Jesus is in a competition but at the end of the day, what's worth it? And I guess the question really comes down to is, are you willing? Are you willing to give all your money away? We don't read that literally, but a lot of people have. A lot of people have acted on that. Are you willing to live in the neighborhood that you didn't want to because God wants you to live next to broken people and projects? Would you be willing to take your family to the mission field if he asked you? Would you be willing? Is there anything that you would not be willing? Because if there is, you're falling short of what he's asking for. And he is not here to beat anybody. Again, he's saying, say yes to me. I will open your eyes and you'll see that I know you. I've formed you in your mother's womb and I know you. And I want to show you the places where you sow your seed. Not in barren places, not in wasteful places. You were created to worship Jesus with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, your money, your time, your schedule, everything. And I'm not saying you need to do anything. I'm saying, are you willing?
Lord, we know that you're looking for people that are worshipers in spirit and truth. And we ask that you will search us now. You will try our hearts. And you'll reveal if there's anything in us that is creating stagnation. If there are any arguments within our minds, justifications for the way that we invest our time that falls short of your standard. Lord, we thank you for grace. We thank you that we are just kindergartners before you. And we look at the rich young ruler like it's this big scary story. But you're just teaching us. Teaching us what it looks like to worship you. I thank you for holy disturbance. And I ask that you do disturb us. God, disturb us anywhere that we need to be disturbed. Disturb us anywhere that we are investing our time poorly. Disturb us of patterns that are creating, that are, that are birthed from idolatrous thought. God, disturb us to open our eyes to see places where we're worshiping other things and not you. Disturb us out of mediocrity, Disturb us out of our comfort zones. Disturb us, God. Disturb us where we have sailed too close to the shore. When we know all along we've been longing to go to the open waters, but we're just too afraid. God, disturb us. Disturb us, God, that we would ever think that we need to hold something back. Disturb the false affections. Disturb the love of money. Disturb the love of anything that's not Jesus. God, we want to worship you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we ask that you will disturb us of anything that keeps us from that so that we can be the disciples, the improvisational disciples that you've called us to be to bring that river to a dying world that desperately, desperately, desperately needs us. Thanks for listening to the Riverhouse Podcast. For more information, visit riverhouseministries.com.